Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to see you all here this morning. My name is Tim Park. I serve as our lead pastor. If this is your first time visiting E-Free Church, a special welcome to you all. Uh, we hope that you enjoy your visit. Uh, we are just a bunch of people who love Jesus, and we're glad that you're here with us today. Now, I know what's on your minds, okay? What Christmas gift should I give to that loved one of mine? Okay, I know you have a long list of gifts to give. I've got the perfect gift for you to give, and I'm holding it here in my hand. It's a book fresh off the presses. This is written by our pastor emeritus, Pastor Mark Hopper, and this is the third in the line of this uh, series. This is his third book in this series. It's called Let Me Encourage You Again. More encouraging stories for every day of the year. And we are honored to be able to, to have these books available for you to purchase. And you can uh, go onto the patio after service. Pastor Mark will be there. I think he'll even sign your copy for you. And uh, you can purchase a book. One book is $25, or you can buy two for $40. And the, the way this book works is this. It's a wonderful uh, book. And... There are 365 stories, one for each day of the year. And God has blessed Pastor Mark with wisdom. And I'm so thankful personally for Pastor Mark. And by the way, he gave me this copy, so I'm just so grateful. But I opened it up, and the idea is this. Whatever that day is, you just open up to that day. So, for example, today is December 10th. You just open up to December 10th, and the title of that story is The Amazing uh, the Amazing Rescue. And so this is a nice read that you can keep on your a coffee table or you can give it as a gift. Buy two for $40. And so you can see Pastor Mark on the patio. And for those of you who do not know Pastor Mark, our pastor emeritus, he served as our lead pastor, our senior pastor for 27 years. So he was my boss for uh, those years when I first arrived as our associate pastor. And on this very stage, he passed the baton to me back in 2015. And he has been faithfully serving and ministering since then. And so we're thankful that we have the opportunity to, to have a, a, an author in our midst. And so go out and purchase this book. All right, would you bow with me? I want to go before the Lord and ask for his presence upon us as we open his word. Father, as we look to your word, and as we look to the word, Jesus Christ, Father, I ask that you would uh, open our hearts, God, that we would lay aside any distractions, that you would give us mental, and especially spiritual alertness, give us eyes to see, ears to hear and understand. Father, teach us in a way that would transform us so that we would look more like the Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, if you've ever been in a meeting, and who here hasn't, right? If you've ever been in a meeting, you know how important agendas are. Agendas are so important to a meeting because here's what happens. When you go to a meeting and you have an agenda in front of you, it keeps you on track. You don't get sidetracked, okay? So agendas are nice. Agendas also make it such that you don't have any surprises, right? Because when you're in a meeting, you don't like surprises. I don't like surprises. 
in a meeting. And so agendas keep you on track. It makes sure it prevents you from having any surprises. So agendas are good. In any meeting, it's nice to have an agenda to refer to. But if I ask the question, hey, what's that person's agenda? That's a whole different kind of uh, feeling, isn't it, right? Because when you hear that, what's that person's agenda? You know what I'm really asking, right? What is that person's motive? What does that person really want from me? Is there a hidden agenda? I love it when every now and then people reach out to me, hey, Tim, you want to grab coffee? You want to get lunch? And in that email, I love it when they say, by the way, no agenda. I love that. I love that because it just kind of diffuses it because sometimes I'm thinking, oh no, what does that person want? What does that person want to say? And I get it. There are times where we have to get together, we have to talk to each other, and there's a reason that we have to get together for a specific purpose, for some matter that we have to discuss. But it's wonderful when people just say to you, hey, you want to get together? No agenda. And I'm like, I'm there. Those are my favorite meetings. No agenda. Well, today, we're going to look at a man who had every opportunity to sing his own praises, build himself up, and promote his own agenda. He had every opportunity to do so, but his one and only agenda in life was to be a witness to the light. And so we're going to look at this man. And that's the title of our message this morning, A Witness to the Light. And today we're going to be in John chapter 1. We've been in John 1 since the beginning of our series, and we're continuing in chapter 1. We'll stay in chapter 1 next week and the week after that as well. And today we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And then we're going to jump to verse 15. And then we'll jump ahead to verses 19 to 34. We're going to fill in those gaps in the next two weeks so it all makes sense. But this morning I'm going to begin in John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So you can follow along here. John 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Now, here in this passage, the Apostle John is introducing us to another man by the name of John. Now, John is a common name today in our society, right? Right? There are many men named John, right? Right, John Suzuki? Right, John Hamill? Right, John Tanuz? John Dotto? John Lee? Right, Johnny Lee? Right, Jonathan Tran? 
And even John Sun Huang, right? So that qualifies too. And so we have our share of men named John. I'm sure there are many other Johns I might have missed. But we have many men in our church with the first name John. Well, years ago, when my brother John, I have a brother named John, okay? My younger brother John, he's also a pastor. Years ago, he and I were pastoring at the same church. And at our church at that time, there were many men named John, just like here at our church. And, uh, and so we had to distinguish all these men, so we came up with a system, right? Because they all had the first name John. We had another guy at our church with the exact same name as my brother, John Park, okay? And so we, had, we, had, we came up with a system. We gave every person with the name John a nickname. Okay? And so the congregation member, John Park, we just called him JP. Okay? My brother, he's a pastor, so we called him Pastor JP. Another guy named John, we called him Charlie Brown. I have no idea why we called him Charlie Brown, but we nicknamed him Char Charlie Brown. And so today, the name John is a very common name. Well, guess what? In the New Testament, it was also a very common name. And so here in this opening passage, John the Apostle is introducing us to another man by the name of John. And by the way, in case you didn't know, as I've been sharing there are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But did you know that two of those authors were named John? You have John, the apostle who wrote the book that we're studying, but also John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. We call him Mark, but his full name was John Mark. And so you have John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and then you have John the Apostle. And here in this passage, John the Apostle is introducing us to another man named John, not to be confused. And he is John the Baptist. That's how we refer to the man that we're going to look at today, John the Baptist. Now, just so you know, back then in the New Testament, there were no denominations, okay? So John was not a Baptist, okay? <laughs> And he was not a Presbyterian, he was not a Methodist, he was not a Lutheran, he was just simply John, and he baptized people. All right. John was like this Old Testament prophet. He preached Jesus Christ wherever he went. And even when people applauded John the Baptist for his ministry, because he would preach, people would be encouraged, inspired, exhorted, impacted, and so he gathered a lot of people behind him. People followed him. But even when his group grew and grew, he made sure that he stayed committed to his calling. You see, the man that we're going to look at today, he said this about Jesus. He, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. He must increase I must decrease. And this tells us much about the character of John the Baptist. And just so you know, it wasn't this false humility. It wasn't this uh, humble brag. You know, sometimes people like, they like to humble brag, right? But John the Baptist was never like, oh, I don't know why all these people are following me. I'm just, I'm a nobody. That, that wasn't John. He truly understood God's plan for him. And God's plan for John the Baptist was this. It was to be the forerunner 
for the Messiah. Now, what's the role of a forerunner? It's a, it's a fascinating job. If you are a forerunner, here's your job and your sole job. You prepare the way for someone else, and then you get out of the way. That's the job of a forerunner. You prepare the way, and then you get out of the way. You step aside. A forerunner does not prepare the way, and then when the other person comes, says, hey, can we share the spotlight? It's a fascinating job to be a forerunner. You see, John the Baptist knew that he was preparing the way for the Messiah and that his role, John the Baptist's role, would not only eventually diminish, it would end. He knew going into his ministry that one day it would stop. I mean, what kind of person, you know, you know enters a job like that? What kind of leader says, okay, you're going to develop a ministry, it's going to grow, and then you're going to stop. And you're going to make way for somebody else. In our culture, in our society, leaders, right, they tend to uh, be fueled by prestige and influence and want to hold on to power as long as possible. You know, today, the title of influencer is, is a very big one, right? Especially in social media. And these days, people, they uh, aspire to be influencers. And that's because if you are amongst the top influencers, influencers, you have a lot of fame and a lot of fortune. And because of that, here's what often happens. Influencers, leaders, and also everyday normal people like us, we are prone to envy. We're prone to jealousy. We're prone to comparison. It's not hard to go on social media and find yourself comparing yourself with somebody else. John the Baptist, he knew that as his ministry was growing, it was expanding, that one day soon it would all come to an end. And that was all part of God's plan. Think about this. Yeah, what leader wants to gather disciples and followers only to say one day you're going to go and follow somebody else? That was the role of the forerunner. And by the way, John the Baptist's birth, it was somewhat of a miracle, actually. He was born to old parents. His mother was beyond childbearing years. His dad's name was Zechariah. His mom's name was Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest. Zechariah's job was to talk as a priest. One day, the angel Gabriel visited Zechariah and said, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. Zechariah didn't believe him. So do you know what God did? God took away Zechariah's voice. You know, earlier Sam said that he lost his voice this past week. It was only for a week, and you got it back. God gave it back to you. Amen. Zechariah, he lost his voice. Literally, God took the voice away from a priest until his son was born because Zechariah did not believe that he would have a son because his wife, Elizabeth, 
could not conceive, and she was beyond the childbearing years. But she gave birth to a son, and they called him John, and he was the forerunner to Jesus. Now here's a fascinating connection between John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist's mom, Elizabeth, was related to Mary, Jesus' mother. They were likely cousins, possibly, which meant that John the Baptist and Jesus were related, which I find so fascinating that that is why John the Baptist, by the way, he was born six months before Jesus. You can read all about that in Luke's account. And John the Baptist as we just read in verse 15, said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. You see, John understood, even though Jesus was younger than he was as a human being, Jesus has always existed. John understood the deity of his relative. He knew that Jesus had always existed with a father at creation. At the beginning of our series, we talked about an important theological concept known as the Trinity. This is important because this is foundational to our faith. This one understanding separates our faith from many other, all other beliefs out there. Now I want to review this concept known as the Trinity. The Trinity is this. God is one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and yet he is not three gods, but one God. And Christmas is all about Jesus taking on human flesh. So when we say this is the season we celebrate the birth of Jesus, I know that you know that Jesus existed before he was physically born, right? So we refer to the birth of the baby Jesus, but Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has always existed. When he came, he came and took on human flesh. And that's why the Apostle John, he takes us all the way back to creation because he wanted to emphasize this. At the beginning of our series, we talked about how Matthew... He begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. John Mark begins his gospel with the public ministry of Jesus. Luke begins his gospel with the birth of Jesus. John, writing to a new generation of Christians and to a new generation of those who had not yet heard the gospel, he takes us all the way back to creation. And that's why John's gospel is often seen as the evangelistic gospel. He takes us all the way back, and he focuses on revealing the word, the light of the world, the hope of salvation. And so John the Apostle takes us back to creation, and then John the Baptist, he confirms that, and he emphasizes that very point when he says that he, Jesus, my relative, was before me. John understood that Jesus as a man was younger than he was. But as a second person of the Trinity, he has always existed. Let's continue on here in verse 19. Jump ahead to verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony. 
when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So, here in this passage, here's what's happening. For the very first time in John's gospel, the religious establishment is mentioned by name. So the Jewish leaders, having heard about John the Baptist's ministry, they send representatives just to kind of see what he's all about. And in verse 20, it clearly tells us that John the Baptist did not come onto the scene to draw attention to himself. So he knew that his one job was to be a witness to the light. Another way you can say that is this. His job was to point people to Jesus. That was John's one and only job, to point people to Jesus. And so when these religious leaders came to him, questioning him, hey, are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. The reason why they asked him if he was Elijah is because it was prophesied that Elijah would come again. And when they looked at John physically, they thought, well, he looks like Elijah. He dresses like Elijah. But John says, no, I'm not Elijah. Then they said, are you the prophet that was prophesied in Deuteronomy? God had promised another prophet who would come. And John says, no, I am not him. So finally, the religious leaders demanded an answer from John the Baptist. And here's what he says in verse 23. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. I get it. The religious community wanted to know John's agenda. Why did he come on the scene? Why is he gathering all these disciples? He was growing. He was making an impact. But again, John was not concerned about making a name for himself. Now, I don't know if John the Baptist carried around business cards, but if he did, here's my guess. If John pulled out a business card, my guess is the name on that business card would have been Jesus Christ. And the phone number, Jesus' personal cell. That's my guess, okay? And here's my guess. The one question that did not enter John the Baptist's mind was this question. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? That's a question that is often asked in our society. What's in it for me? And that one question, it often fuels our human behavior, doesn't it, right? Because people want personal satisfaction. 
and gratification, right? Let's face it. Most of our decisions that we make on a daily basis are fueled by that one question. What's in it for me? Now, my guess is we won't use those exact words, right? Somebody comes up to you, hey, do you want to get together? What's in it for me? <laughs> that just sounds selfish. It just sounds wrong, right? So we don't use the term, hey, what's in it for me? But we've come up with nice alternative phrases to disguise that phrase, hey, what's in it for me? But the reality is, in many decisions in life, internally we're thinking, what do I have to gain from it? How can I benefit? And oftentimes we're thinking, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You do me a favor, I'll do you a favor. And now while personal gratification in life and in ministry can be a healthy part of our walk with Jesus, we must always keep the bigger picture in mind. And I think that there's a better question to ask ourselves. So instead of asking ourselves every time a decision comes up, what's in it for me? Here's the better question. What's in it for him? What's in it for him? You see, because we are called to serve God in all that we do, all that we say. And yes, serving God is sometimes personally satisfying. That's a, that's a kind of a, a byproduct I hope it is for you. I hope church community is personally rewarding for you. I hope that ministry can and it should be rewarding. At the same time, doing the work of the Lord is difficult work, isn't it? Sometimes doing the work of the Lord is painful. It is. And sometimes... It is just unpleasant. Here's why. Here's why doing the work of the Lord sometimes is difficult, painful, and unpleasant. Because whenever people are involved, <laughs> pain and heartbreak and heartache are close by. Isn't that true? Whenever people are involved, Pain and heartache are close by. So that's why if we always ask ourselves the question, what's in it for him? And then we act accordingly, we can be certain that God will always be honored. Even if at times, we are not personally gratified. What's in it for him? That's the question John the Baptist asked himself. Everything he did was for the sake of the Savior. His posture was that of humility. He was, he was so humble that he said, that he was unworthy to untie the straps of the sandals of the one who would come after me. Now that phrase, I want to explain what that phrase means. Because it may not mean a whole lot to us. But in that culture, tying 
or I'm sorry, untying the straps of the sandals, especially of a guest who would enter your home, was reserved for the lowest servant in the household. It was the most menial of tasks. In fact, at that time, rabbis and disciples, they had a kind of a teacher-student relationship, and they would travel to places. And oftentimes, the disciples, they would be tasked with um, getting things for the rabbi, taking care of the rabbi's needs. But the one thing the rabbi would never ask his disciple was to untie the straps. That was too low, even for the disciples. And here is John the Baptist saying, I am unworthy to even untie the straps of the sandals of the one who will come after me. That's humbling. We can learn so much from John the Baptist. You know, in most areas of life, the more a person finds success, here's what happens. The more that person has people serve that person, right? So if you make it to the top, people serve you. You have your driver, your butler, people on airplanes serve you. John's ministry had grown. He had a following. But John knew that the best leaders desire to serve others, not themselves. The best leaders put others ahead of their personal agendas. The best leaders are not position conscious. The best leaders are motivated by love. Look at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now here is a remarkable fact. Up until that time, John the Baptist did not know for sure that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, they were related, and it's possible that they knew each other, or maybe they didn't know each other. I'm not sure. But at the very least, John the Baptist was not sure that Jesus was the Messiah. And I find this fascinating. It's remarkable because John... The Baptist was preparing the way for someone he didn't know. I mean, that's remarkable. God says, John, you're going to prepare the way. You're going to be the forerunner. But John did not necessarily know. Maybe he had an idea, but he wasn't sure until God revealed it to him while he was baptizing Jesus. Talk about faith. Talk about trust. Talk about obedience. 
John the Baptist just obeyed. And that is why in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this most incredible thing about John the Baptist. In Matthew's gospel, he records Jesus saying this, of all the people who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Those are Jesus' words. Of all the people who've ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. You see, John's mission was to personally prepare the world for the arrival of Jesus. The last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi. The first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. Between Malachi and Matthew, Four hundred years of silence. God did not speak. He did not speak a word of revelation for over four hundred years. Now that doesn't mean that nothing happened. Prophecies were fulfilled during that period. But in regards to God's revealed word, which we have today, between Malachi and Matthew. 400 years of silence. And then comes John the Baptist. And he served as a bridge between the Old and New Testament. In fact, he was the last in the line of all the prophets who would predict the coming of Christ. But, check this out. He was the only prophet ever to see Jesus in the flesh. No other prophet had that privilege. So John's mission was to personally prepare the world for Jesus' arrival. He was to be a witness to the light. And guess what? I'm going to bring it now to the 21st century. You and I are witnesses to that same light. Our mission here at Ephraim Church is to know Jesus and make him known. If ever there's the perfect time to make him known, it's in this season of Christmas. It's natural. It's built in. So I want to help us all make the most of all of our opportunities during this Christmas season to make Jesus known. I want to help us all right now to take advantage of the opportunities to be a witness this season. It's going to begin with a question. So I'm going to ask you to ask yourself a question right now. And it's this. The question is this. How has Jesus changed my life? I'd like for you to think about that question. How has Jesus changed my life? And you can answer that by looking at the last year. And think back to the last year. How has Jesus changed my life in the last year? Or you can look back to the last five years. Or maybe even to the last three years. Three years ago, some major world event took place. Right? We called it the pandemic. And so maybe you might even look at your life. How has Jesus changed my life pre and post pandemic? Or go back 10 years. 20 years, how has Jesus changed 
my life. Be specific. Think about something specific. If you can't think of how Jesus has changed your life in the past, hopefully he has, you can ask yourself a, a slightly different question, and that's this. How is Jesus changing me right now? Okay. He hasn't changed me fully yet, but I'm a work in progress, and he's changing me. So how is Jesus changing your life right now? I want to give you some examples. Maybe for some of you here, you're not as angry as you once were. If you can say, I'm not an angry person, or I'm not as angry as I once was, Praise God. I celebrate with you. And I guarantee you, there are people here in this room that can say that, that I used to be an angry person. Praise God that Jesus has changed me in that area. You know, once upon a time, in my earlier years as an adult, I really struggled on the freeway when there was traffic or when there were bad drivers. <laughs> I really struggled with that. I would just talk to that driver under my breath. And sometimes out loud. And over the years, God started to change my heart. And, you know, on the freeway, the fuse used to be really short. But Jesus lengthened that fuse. Is that possible? Yes, is that possible? Amen? It is absolutely possible. Jesus can change your anger. It won't completely disappear. But some of you are less angry now than before. So Jesus has changed you. Praise God. Maybe for some of you, you're not as anxious as you used to be. You don't worry as much. You don't lie awake as much at night worrying about things out of your control. Can that happen? Can Jesus make you less anxious? Absolutely he can. And for some of you, he's done that. Praise God. Maybe you no longer worry about something you used to lose sleep over. Praise God for that. That's Jesus. Maybe for some here, you are kinder today. I hope we are all kinder today than yesterday and the day before. I hope we are all kinder with each passing day. Some of you are more compassionate. Some here today, I know for a fact, you are more generous than you used to be. Let's think about that. Can Jesus change your sense of finances and money? Absolutely. Once upon a time, people could have held on to their money so tightly, and Jesus has allowed them to loosen their grip. Now they just give money away all the time. So ask yourself that question. How has Jesus changed me? Or how is he changing me? Or if you can't even find an answer for either, either of those two questions, then here's the third question, okay? I'm going to cover all bases. So if you can't think of how Jesus has changed you or how he is changing you, ask yourself this question. What area of my life does he need to change? What area of my life does he need to change? And so once we've identified the answer to any of those three questions, 
How has he changed me? How is he changing me? What area does he need to change? Once we have the answer, here's how we're going to apply it this Christmas season. The next time you're at a Christmas gathering, and we all have our share of Christmas gatherings, you have the opportunity, I have the opportunity to share the answer, how Jesus has changed me, or how he is changing me, or how he needs to change me. Now, what that doesn't mean is this. That doesn't mean that the next Christmas gathering you go to, the party's going on, the music's playing, you get up in front and you say, stop the music. Stop talking, everybody. Give me your attention. Here's how Jesus changed me. Now, don't do that, okay? You'll scare people off. Do this instead. The next time you're at your gathering and you're in a group and people are just talking and people are talking about how busy this season is. People talk about how frustrating it was trying to find a parking spot. People talk about how many gifts they have to buy and how little money they have. People talk about how overwhelmed they feel. As people are talking, think back to Sunday morning, December 10, and think back to how Jesus has changed me in that area. And just share that gently, quietly, naturally. So that maybe somebody in that circle is saying, oh, it was so frustrating circling that parking lot for a half hour. And this guy cut me off and that person wouldn't leave and it was so frustrating. And then right there, just quietly say, you know, yeah, I get it. Uh, but you know, and, and I struggle with that too. But Jesus has really been working in my heart. And so the other day, I was in the parking lot, in my car, waiting for a parking spot, and then one opened up, and then there was another car coming from the other side. And we were trying to determine who got there first. And we looked at each other. But something prompted me, the Holy Spirit, of course, to say, hey, why don't you take it? The next time you're gathering, and people are talking about the stresses of all the gifts they have to buy. You say, you know, yeah, you know, I used to struggle. And I'm still struggling with money, still struggling with gifts. But, but Jesus has been working in my heart and on my heart. And, you know, the gifts, they don't have to be expensive. They don't have to be elaborate. You know, I found creative ways to make gifts. So you, you understand, right? So your next gathering, when you're in a circle with people and you've already identified the answer, how has Jesus changed me? You work it in. In a way that is humble, gracious, so that people will see your light shine. That's how we can be a witness to the light this season. So that when in that circle, when people are complaining, you buck the trend and you talk about Jesus. Can that happen? Can we do it? I believe we can.
I believe we can. I believe we can. And here's the reality. I'm going to close with this. You're going to go to a gathering, some gathering this Christmas, and you're going to be at odds with somebody or some persons at that gathering. I guarantee it. Pray beforehand. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide your conversation and walk in there and remind yourself, point people to Jesus. Point people to Jesus. Let's bow. Father, help me to point people to Jesus. Help us to point people to Jesus. This Christmas season, help us to go against a a trend and just humbly point people to Jesus. Help us not to get too caught up and wrapped up in our own worlds and all the things that we may lack, all the things that we may want. Help us just to point people to Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.